in a letter that he once wrote to a friend, uh, Albert Einstein penned these words. People like you and me, though mortal, of course, like everyone else, do not grow old no matter how long we live. What I mean is that we never cease to stand like curious children before the great mystery into which we were born. And anyone who has uh, spent much time with young children, and I know many of you are parents or have had these chances to hang out with kids, especially preschool age children, and their relationship to the world and the universe is very, it's wide open in a certain kind of way and, and what's possible and not possible and this, the great mystery that Einstein referred to there, that's, that's right there all the time and, and things are more fluid, they're not fixed and the universe is still a place of wonder and possibility, imagination, and, and things are, are more fluid and the notions and ideas about what's real and what isn't, that's not so solid. And as we grow up, you know, we tend to lose a lot of that sense of curiosity, this ability to stand like children before the great mystery into which we were born, as Einstein put it. A lot of these, these feelings of, of wonder they, that may have been there, they, they go away. And in some ways, you know, school is really a big part of this process in some, some ways, you know, we're, we're put in desks and rows and lines and suddenly schedules and being on time and things like that. And we get told to grow up and be real and be sensible over and over for so long that we lose sight of a lot of possibilities, all that might be. And this sense of this great mystery gets drained out of our, our lives in some, some ways. And this sense of a deep kind of real curiosity or interest, not superficial, but we lose that. And we take a lot for granted, especially everything we've been told about what is real. We had a bit of science uh, class last night from Jesse, <laughs> and I wanted to continue with that, um, that theme this evening. So this is, a, this is a, an excerpt, a short uh, passage from a an article on the uh, NASA website, National Aeronautic and Space Administration. One of the main sort of bastions of science having to do with astronomy, space travel here in the United States. It turns out that roughly 70% of the universe is dark energy. Dark matter makes up about 25%. The rest, everything on Earth, everything ever observed, with all of our instruments, all normal matter adds up to less than 5% of the universe. I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> you know, this is, NASA is not some fringe thing here. It's hard to get more mainstream than, than this. You know, are they just making up really weird stuff to see if we'll believe it. Oh yeah, there it is, NASA website, must be true. Yeah, dark matter, dark energy. I'm down with that. I mean, everything that has ever been detected in any way with all, and they have some fancy instruments, they have these things that can detect gravity waves that happened 1.3 billion years ago <laughs> from a colliding couple of black holes. That's fancy instruments. That's fancy stuff. <laughs> you know. Everything, galaxies, stars, planets, toasters. 
that's less than 5% of the stuff. And there's a bunch of galaxies out there. Whole fields of them have been, I mean, billions of stars in those babies. And whole huge fields of them that they, they took these telescopes, they pointed them to a boring part of the sky, the Hubble, and found this field of thousands of galaxies that no one knew was there in the recent years. Not, it's actually quite a while ago now. Now, last fall, I came up with this elegant theory to explain dark matter and dark energy. And I still need help with the math part. It's not my, not my strength, and in these kinds of things, you have to prove it through you know, beautiful equations. But I think there's, this is big, and I think there's the potential for, this could be Nobel Prize worthy. <laughs> so, and I'm, this, I'm, I'm demonstrating my trust in you and revealing this prior to its publication. So you know how you do laundry and, and, and these socks go missing and they're never seen again. Dark matter. And then you put a lot of effort into trying to find them. This is dark energy. So this fruitless searching for these things. So I'm pretty sure that I'm onto something here with this. Uh, and it's just, it's so simple and elegant. And, you know, and they always say that the really beautiful, simple theories are, are, are really the best ones. <laughs> so I'm, I think I'm onto something with this. <clears throat> and, you know, there's a way that we tend to solidify the world. It, it, it tends to collapse down into some kind of fixity through, through what we believe and the way we look at things. And, and we've been told what's real and true. And, and there's all these stories that we've been told about who and what we are. And, and then we've taken them on and, and then we just keep telling them to ourselves. And we create this kind of fixity in that. And these ideas and beliefs and stories, they, they can wind up being very limiting. They limit our sense of what's possible, what we're capable of. And our world can become very narrow and limited through this, and we don't see it a lot of the time. You know, and then there's, we know so much, you know, we, so much, we're so smart and we have a lot of information. And we've learned so much. And we think we know so much about what's true and real. Is there, is there any way that we can come somewhere closer to this, this sense that in that letter from Einstein, where we stand in wonder before this great mystery, stepping beyond the confines of all we've been told, what we believe. This is a quotation from a, a Catholic priest named Henri Nguyen. I love, I read it often. He said, the spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. That indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. So for me, this is another kind of beautiful description of, of our practice of mindfulness, of this kind of uh, active presence. It's corollary to the soft readiness that Michelle spoke about from Suzuki Roshi. You know, is there any way we could find enough confidence or trust to adopt that kind of a stance where, where we're waiting actively present to the moment? Trusting that things will present themselves that are beyond what we believe, beyond what we predict. That kind of radical openness. Probably about 45, maybe as much as 47 years ago now, 
there was a book that came out that was uh, during my high school years, and it was a very important book for me at that time. It was called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda, and it was very um, important for me in my life. And there's, uh, I'd like to read a little bit from that. This, some of this has stayed with me that long since those, day, those days. Before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it. And then you must choose another path. The trouble is that nobody asks the question. And when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. For me, there's only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. Again, this sense of, of wonder or awe in there, this great mystery. There I travel looking breathlessly. And I remember so badly I wanted to feel that way, to feel that I, I could somehow find a path that had heart. I wasn't sure what that meant, but it sounded so real and true and good. And, and to somehow feel that I was living my life from this place of, of a breathless sort of awe or wonder. And, and I had this sense it must be possible. But no paths that were being offered to me at that time felt like they had heart any real heart. And maybe we come to a retreat like this looking for a path that might have heart. And maybe some of us feel we've found one in this practice. And this image of, of this, our path, this, this spiritual life as, as a journey that's found in, in Buddhist traditions and, and many others is not the only found in, in this tradition, the sense of, of being on a path, of walking a path. Hopefully it's a path with heart. And sometimes this is described, this is a, image is widespread, and sometimes there's this image that I love where it's, it's uh, spoken about as a journey home, a journey to our real home, our true home. And if we think about what it might feel like to reach something that was a true home. To me, there are these immediate sorts of connotations or feelings of it being a place of deep ease and relaxation and rest where the body, the mind, the heart, it can all breathe a sigh of relief and relax, really relax. And so if we use this kind of image, if this is useful, some way, then, then we have this sense of walking this path to the deepest ease or to freedom, to peace. And this can be, it can be useful to hold this image, to have some sense in some way. We hold it lightly, this idea of being on a path. It can, it can inform our, our practice in a certain way, but we have to be careful that we don't hold it too literally because it's not that we go somewhere other than where we are right now. And we're not getting something we don't already have. We end up where we started, but something is changed. Our understanding is transformed. And so just a few lines from T.S. Eliot and Little Gidding in the Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. It's like that. Nothing changes, but everything is transformed radically by the power of of insight and liberating wisdom, you could say. This deep seeing into the the nature of things, into the truth of the way it really is. 
And that doesn't come into being because of special conditions or getting to some special state or place. That's always true. That's always there for us to open to because it's just seeing the nature of things. I think maybe if we, if we even think about it at all, we often have this idea of, of enlightenment as some sort of experience where, where we kind of float away. You know, maybe we dissolve into a mist of white light or, or rainbow light and, and kind of waft up through the ceiling. And, you know, that would be very cool. And if, if one of us pulls that off up here, I, I have this feeling you really, you might pay more attention to what we're saying. <laughs> Maybe actually believe, <laughs> believe, <laughs> try what we're suggesting you try. But you know, the Buddha didn't dissolve or float away. He still had to live his life. He, had to, he went on alms round for his meal on a daily basis most of the time. And he woke up with a stiff back. He had chronic back problems later in his life. And he had to deal with difficult people. And, and there were probably situations that came up that he might have preferred to have avoided. You know, this liberation, this Buddha's enlightenment, doesn't mean escaping from life. Life goes on with its joys and its sorrows and the successes and failures and all of that that comes. And this inevitable movement if we take birth through life and to the death of the body, that's, that still takes place. We don't get out of that. But this stress, struggle, suffering in relation to this, that's, that's where some, there's some movement. That's another matter entirely. This is the place where freedom can be found. And this makes a certain sense perhaps, and it's well and good, and it may be sound great or beautiful or inspiring to hear these kinds of words. But we still go through the days on a retreat like this, and there are times probably where we wonder what we're doing and you know, what does this sitting and walking have to do with that, what, what I just said, what I was just talking about. You know, maybe, okay, I'm walking a path, but it doesn't feel like I'm going anywhere. I just, I go back and forth. <laughs> and that's what you told me to do. <laughs> where's, it, where's it going? <laughs> and you know, it's, uh, it's clear that we use this form of the retreat to keep things simple and to remove, take ourselves out of this doing on a certain level that makes up so much the momentum of our life and that momentum that just runs and it keeps us so restless and on the move a lot of the time. And maybe that's part of what's keeping us on a path. Maybe that keeps us stuck on a path that doesn't have real heart. A path where we never find or take the time to actually show up for our life. A path that might be killing us, as Don Juan said. Henry David Thoreau put it this way. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. What are we, what what are we going to look at, and when we come to the end of life, when we come to die, and and look at and say, this was worth doing. It's a good question. This sense here in his words, I wish to live deliberately. This is another uh, way of looking at. Um, 
our practice, to live mindfully, to live with awareness, to live with this deliberate, fronting the essential facts of life. And that's, that's in, a, in, a, in a way what we're, we're inclining towards here on, on a retreat like this. And it is just sitting and walking, and there's nothing even remotely special about it. It is, you could hardly find anything more mundane than the look of this practice, aside from the kind of zombie <laughs> part. But it's just sitting, and it's just walking, and there's nothing even vaguely special except that we bring this quality of mindful awareness to it. That's special. That is like really special. And so the power and beauty of our practice of the meditative experience then is that that has this potential to take us to this direct non-conceptual relationship to our life, where we, as Thoreau said, we front these essential facts of life. It takes us to the level of what others have called uh, ultimate reality or ultimate truth about things. Through this simply showing up for our life, nothing special, except we bring this ability to, to meet it with awareness. That's, that is a complete game changer. With mindful awareness, with mindfulness, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. We're just living out our conditioning. And, and opening to our life, to our experience in this way can be so healing and transforming for us. And it, it, we have the possibility in that to see through some of the self-limiting kinds of ideas that, and the deeply held beliefs about ourselves, about the nature of reality that are, have been so woven into the fabric of our perception that we don't even see it. And we never question whether or not it's true. We don't see how it's operating and the ways that it limits us. And if we approach it in the right way, we could see our practice, this meditation that we do as, as a kind of training, a process of a kind of training, where we train and encourage this uh, ability that we all have to be present and aware, to be mindful. Right now, check it out. Ask the question, is there awareness? You can't ask that question and say no. It's, if, you have, if you ask it, you always get to say yes. Go ahead and ask it a few times during the day, at least that many times you can say, I was here. That's much more than that, of course. This is just a natural capacity that we all have. And through, through this practice and, and coming back over and over and over, we start to um, know the, the deeper truths of things below the surface, the way it really is. And we start to trust this ability to be mindful, to be aware. We start to trust that awareness more than the, than the passing show of, of changing phenomena. And we start, one thing we see is that this awareness, this mindful awareness, this knowing capacity of the mind, that's just its nature, that ultimately it's not affected by that which it is, which is known. It's like a mirror. It reflects things, but, but there's a certain kind of purity there. And we see that, um, that it can hold anything that arises. And that the awareness of fear is not afraid and the awareness of anger is not angry and so on. And so there's a certain place that, that that's a safe place. <laughs> that's, that's a good refuge. We find a kind of refuge there and in a, in a sort of, in a truth that was always there 
this sense we aren't getting something we don't have. This voice of wisdom that arises within our own mind and heart, a place that's already free. This is from uh, a Thai forest monk, Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko, from a book, Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware but can't yet let go of its perceptions, of the conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you. This basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. And again, we may find words like this uh, beautiful, inspiring. They, they may point to something that touches us in some way. But then, you know, we, we know it's not easy. We all, all of us sitting up here and, and all of you know that's not easy. It's not easy to, to do that, to just keep at it. And if this practice was easy, we'd all be enlightened and we could just go home. Because, you know, it's not just that we're all remedial yogis or a bunch of slackers. (laughs) You know, this process, if we're going to keep at this, well, except for maybe Jesse over there. (laughs) You know, at some point, this this is going to demand everything we have. And we need so much courage and steadfastness to stay the course and, and a lot of patience and kindness above all. Kindness more than anything else. You know, and every day throughout the retreat so far, we've been emphasizing this, these heart qualities of kindness and care, of tenderness, of compassion. We talk about this every day. And we do it for a good reason, because it's essential. These are the words of the Buddha. Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness, by metta. We will make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidate it, exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus should you train train yourselves. I love this, this idea, this image in this short teaching of making metta, making kindness our vehicle. And let this mindfulness, this awareness ride that vehicle. We'll carry it along. Someone recently, um, I heard, uh, was teaching and, and they they described metta as kindness with awareness. Oh, there's something oh, that's great. It's great to to have that that kindness with awareness. It's and there's that sense of these two coming together. So there's this caring, kind, friendly quality infused with clear seeing, with awareness. That was a great description. And then I found in my mind, I kind of extended this. I split it into two, two phrases that came to me. In thinking of this, I thought, oh, we could say that metta is awareness within kindness and kindness within awareness. Awareness within kindness, kindness within awareness. And there's some thing about combining these two, bringing them together, infusing the one with the other in either way that uh, 
is really powerful, I think. It has great potential. And this quality of, of heart, of metta, you know, I used to think it was something special, so far beyond me. I was convinced it was something I had never, never felt. I turned it into some grand thing. But it's a simple quality of a friendly heart. And it, it recognizes this um, wish that's shared by all beings to be at ease or to be happy or to be safe or at peace or all the different words we, we might use to describe that. But that movement of heart that, that moves towards um, goodness. And this simple friendliness, it's, it soothes and supports and moistens and increases the pliability and the spaciousness and the ease of the heart and mind. It supports our capacity to stay balanced in the, balanced in the face of all that comes, all that we encounter, these deep internal knots and, and deeply conditioned habits of mind and heart that keep showing up. And they can feel like these insurmountable problems a lot of the time. But, so we need this, this tenderness and kindness to, to hold that, to keep us going. You know, pure insight meditation is, has been called the dry path of insight. We gotta moisten that, we need some lotion on that baby. A sprinkling of rain, something. So we could say that that our meditation practice, whether it's uh, mindfulness, insight, meditation, vipassana, or loving kindness, when we practice that intentionally, that that these are about the transformation of the mind and heart. There's some truth to that. And in a way you could say it's the process of bringing mind and heart together. And there's a way that love and freedom or love and wisdom are, are inextricably intertwined. This is some words from Krishnamurti. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no real value at all. Someone once asked His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, why so many people found him so irresistible. (laughs) People have have no idea who this guy is, but they just feel drawn to him. And you know, he's getting old, but he's still really cute. (laughs) He's just, he's so appealing. He has such a great smile. And he said, when he was asked this question, he said, Oh, I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated. But in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. I think maybe that's true. And there's some way that that just shows through. And people just respond to that. He doesn't, he doesn't work on that. It's just his, his nature. And we may have met or heard about 
hear these stories or hear about people like this and they just seem to embody these qualities of love and kindness and care and compassion. It just seems to be their nature. I was really touched last night when Jesse spoke about Venerable Mahagosananda, who lived near here towards the end of his life. And he was such an inspiration to me. And I used to go visit him. And uh, he came here on occasion as well. And I thought, I can tell another story. So one of the, I think maybe the last time I went to see him, I, I had gone in and he was living in a small monastery. And uh, there was another monk when I went to the, the building where I, where I remembered seeing him. And he said, and I came in and I just wanted to pay respects. And he, he didn't, Mahagosananda, no one there, they didn't know me. I just dropped in now and then. I was not like an old friend. And he said, yes, he's in his room. You can go and say hello, pay respects. So I went into his room and it was just a very small, simple room. And, and uh, as soon as I came in the door, he just, his face lit up in this huge smile and he started giving me bars of soap and things from his shelves and just beaming and beaming at me. And he didn't, he wasn't speaking it by then. I don't think he spoke anymore. And, and it was just like being bathed in love and light to be around him. And there's this beautiful photograph that I've seen periodically and it's, it's Mahagosananda and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and they're bowing to one another and they're bent over more than double and each one is trying to get lower <laughs> so that they can show the greater respect. And this sense of being bathed in love and light, people said it was like that to visit uh, Deepama. Michelle could speak to this. I never got to meet her. This past winter, I, I was on retreat in a small monastery that, that uh, sorry, uh, Michelle and Rebecca and Jesse and I have been to many times. And I, I stayed there. I've, I've, I realized I've been going there for almost 20 years off and on and this year. And um, I spent I spent about six, seven weeks living in a small cave there once when I was, during a period when I was living in monk's robes. And, um, and Michelle, I think, uh, nicknamed the, the abbot there, the, the Sayadaw, uh, the angel Sayadaw. We call him the angel Sayadaw, Jayanta. And, um, and I was talking to them about my retreat recently and, and I, and this, this strong emotion came up in me, remembering how happy I was there. And again, it was like being in a field of kindness and care in such a simple way. And it was so good for me. And you know, it's so easy to get cynical and and to hear stories like this and, and to reduce them to some sort of sentimentality or something. But people like this, whether we are fortunate enough to actually meet them or we're just hearing about them sometimes, they, they point to this possibility that is true and real, that one can actually live from a place of unconditional love. That's a real possibility. And when we're with uh, people like this, they just, they seem to relate to us as though we're the most important person in the world. They're totally present and they hold us with this uh, care and kindness that um, is nothing to do with who we are. It's just because we are. <laughs> it's just because we're a living being. That's, that's why. We get that. And we can feel as though we're born, kind of born with a certain amount of this quality of kindness, of love, and, and that's just the way it is. And we'll never measure up to these people like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, will always fall short and we compare ourselves. And, but these are not, these are not, this is not just something to admire in some special being. This is something we can really 
nurture and develop because, you know, nothing's fixed. The heart and mind are malleable, able to change. If that wasn't true, there'd be no point in coming on retreat and doing this practice at all. It wouldn't be be worth it. In one teaching, uh, the Buddha said something that's quite as simple and it may be kind of obvious, but it has far-reaching consequences. Potentially it does anyway. He said, that which one frequently thinks about and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And it points directly to how, you could say, habitual patterns of thought get formed in the heart and mind. And, and we can see how it happens. It's just, it's just cause and effect unfolding there. And, you know, we can feel as though we have no choice and that our thoughts and, and our reactions to them are just uh, unavoidable. And, but we do have some ability to bring some intentionality, to bring our attention and, and our intention to this. And, yeah, of course, a lot of our thinking is just arising and unbidden. And, and we live with that, you know, our conditioning plays itself out. We can't control it, but we can pay attention and choose to some extent where we incline the mind and heart, what we think about and reflect upon. And if we incline to qualities like loving kindness and compassion, care, well-wishing, friendliness, then, then it does change. The mind changes. We create this energy of goodwill in it, and it's real and true. And so we can start very simply connecting with, uh, I spoke about this wish that we share with all beings to be happy at ease. And that's, that's such a lovable, that's so lovable. It's inherently lovable. It's a quality of goodness. Sometimes we connect with our own suffering and, and we know that's, that all beings suffer at times. And we all know what that is. And, and just as we wish to be free, so do all beings. We connect to something more universal than our personal histories and our individual lives and all of our individual struggles. It goes beyond that to that which we all share. It's true for all of us. One of my friends told me recently that she had um, changed her religion on, on her Facebook page to kindness in response and, and uh, out of um, connection to a very simple statement that uh, the Dalai Lama once made where he said, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. Now I confess, I, I've never looked at Facebook, I don't really know what it is. But I guess you can say stuff like this on there. <laughs> and, um, I actually, I never have, it's true. <laughs> you know, and, and that's a famous quotation. I mean, a lot of us have heard that. Maybe everyone in here, it's often quoted. And it can sound kind of sweet, like, you know, like something on the inside of a greeting card. I'm sure it's on a greeting card somewhere. And, and, and we can dismiss it as just sweetness like we would a, a greeting card slogan or something. And, and overlook, miss the profound understanding that is expressed in something that simple. And so in this context, if we think of, of religion, he said, my religion is kindness. If we think of it in this context as, as maybe the worldly expression of the deepest kind of spiritual truths and understanding, we might get some sense of what he's pointing to in making this kind of statement. Because when the deepest truths are understood, known and really integrated into our essence, you could say, then kindness as our religion, it's the simplest, it's just this natural manifestation of this wisdom. It's this effortless expression in the world of the free mind and heart. And so in some essential way, as in, in that quotation from Krishnamurti, meditation is the movement of love and wisdom and love are spoken about as the wings of awakening and that's true, they are the wings. It doesn't fly without both of them. And this is a quotation from a great Indian saint teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, 
famous quotation many of you have heard. I, this may be my most favorite, my favorite quotation of all time. He once said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. So this, the wisdom of I am nothing, this isn't pointing to some kind of bleak emptiness or some, some non-existence. It points to this, the deepest possible wisdom and this clear, unrestricted spaciousness of mind and heart that is an aspect of that, free of any separation of self and other. And if we're nothing in that way, there are no barriers to the expression of love. Nothing gets in the way of that. Kindness, care, compassion, they just arise naturally. They're exp- the expression of that emptiness, of that nothing, no thing. And so being nothing, then we're inevitably and essentially and always everything. And, and this love and wisdom, they flow together like they're like currents in the same river or like strands of the same cable. And they, they interweave and flow and inform and strengthen one another. And they lead us to the same place. Someone once asked Deepama, this great teacher from, who lived in Calcutta, asked her, should I practice metta or should I practice vipassana? And she said, she said, at least to this person, it just doesn't matter. In this case, at this time, at least, in, she's, in her view, they, they went to the same place. One time uh, in a talk, um, someone um, took an excerpt from what I, what they said was the, the code of the samurai. And this one short phrase, I make my mind my friend. And for me, this points to one of the most uh, profound possibilities of transformation in this practice, that we might make our own mind our friend. And I have, I, this is uh, one of the greatest of any possible gift I could point to for myself in, in having been at this for a while now. Because I didn't start there, but I can say honestly and truthfully that my mind is my friend. It's a really good friend. And sometimes it feels like my best friend. But I didn't start there. I started with it as holding it as my worst enemy. And I saw that my my own mind and heart as a problem to be fixed, as something to go into battle against. And that has really changed. And you know what the key has been? That I just have kept doing it. That's it. I am a role model for perseverance up here. Because I know what I'm working with. And there's nothing special. But I have kept at it. That's been the key. And that, that change, that transformation has happened despite me. And so if we get nothing else out of this retreat, out of our time here, these two weeks or 16 days, then some sense of this as a possibility, as a real possibility, this possibility that we might have a mind that is our true, maybe our best friend, then our time here will be very well spent if we get any taste for that, any sense of that. Uh, teacher of ours, um, some of us anyway, another Burmese teacher, Sayada Ujotika, he once said this, how can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind, by really paying attention throughout the day, then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually it will become purer 
and it will become your friend. And this is, this is it. When we see the truth about it, then it does become our friend, our real friend. So I brought a poem to share with you to end the talk this evening. This is um, one of my very favorite poems. And uh, some of you have probably heard me read this before. This is called The Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. So it's a song, I suppose. It's from a book called Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin. And this, um, you can receive this as uh, my wish for you. Now and always. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps. And the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So we'll have just a minute or two of quiet and let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.